Welcome to MFM Speaks Out, the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is co-hosted by MFM members and musicians Adam Reifsteck and yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved and invite you to visit our website at musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest today is pianist, composer, music educator, producer, and MFM Advisory Committee member Arturo O'Farrell. Before we begin, let's listen to some of his music. This is a piece from the Four Questions CD called Cacophonous. Thank you. 
Uh, welcome, uh, and uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to doing this, this interview with us. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to support MFM. Thank you for the lovely, unbelievable review, and thank you for the privilege of being able to speak to you. And, and, and really, it's my privilege. Oh, the privilege is all ours. You have had a very, very interesting career. Uh, you've had six Grammy nominations, four of which you won. Uh, the last one was for a piece called Three Revolutions, uh, where you collaborated with uh, Chucho Valdez. Yeah. 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 That, was, that was seriously powerful music. And you worked with uh, your father, Chico O'Farrell. Uh, you worked with Harry Belafonte, Lester Bowie, Carla Blay, Dizzy Gillespie. That must have been a lot of fun. You know, I wasn't part of his regular touring unit, but I had the privilege of sharing a stage with him several times. Mm. And, it's, yeah, I mean, come on. It's just, <laughs> Diz was, uh, I don't know, Diz was just, he's like, he's like Prince, man. He just... That you he commanded that energy. You had to you had to listen to him. You had to respond to him. Um, you know, I don't know. He just. I remember uh, uh, just being a kid before I ever got to play with him, and and, and he would visit my father, and uh, they were kind of friendly. And uh, you know, if you can, uh, just being a kid around him was amazing. Because mm. he just had that. You know, kids are. Kids are super smart. Yeah. They can spot frauds from a mile away. But but this, man, you just, just wanted to talk to him. And he's like such a cool person. Mm. Mm. You know? That's and then to play with him, to look at, you know, to be on a stage with him was, was uh, extraordinary for me. Yeah. It's, that's one of the things about being on the stage with a real master is that uh, the real master musicians elevate you when you play with them, they bring you up to a new level. I think that's true. I think that anytime you get a chance to be around someone who operates on a high level, you have to really, whatever you think of yourself or you're playing or whether you're up to it or not up to it, or just, just being around people that are focused like that and have that kind of mastery makes you a better musician. It is, you know, whether or not you realize it at the time. But if you're open to it, it's, it's, it's an experience. If you're open to being around people who have a lot to teach you, you'll learn. You'll learn by osmosis. You'll learn by copying. You'll learn by checking them out. I mean, it's, you know, it's really important to not think you're that accomplished or the, the top banana you know, at any given moment. Just mm. look at people and not marvel at what they can give you. You had... Uh... You had also done a lot of composing. Uh, you were you had commissions from uh, Meet the Composer, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Apollo Theater, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, uh, Symphony Space, et cetera, et cetera. How do you how do you approach uh, such such uh, projects? It's really interesting to me that someone will pay you. I mean, it's, it makes sense <laughs> to me that someone will pay you to play a gig mm. makes sense that someone will pay you to make an appearance or you know or to fix the thing or or to do something tangible it's a miraculous to me that, that people will ask you to create music um and that i can you know that you can actually be paid to do it is miraculous to me 
you know, and I, I'm not saying that as a matter of pride. I'm just saying that it's it's fascinating to me that someone will say, "Here's a blank slate, make something up," and 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 I I consider that such a huge mind blower, such a huge thing. So when I get a commission, it usually results in my best work. It's mm. like I I mean that when I'm writing just for the sake of writing, sometimes I spin around aimlessly. But but when somebody says we need you to to do something, um, it just, it makes me really really I don't know just makes me really focused. Um, and then the process of commissioning is really strange. The person commissioning you sometimes has a goal for what they want you to do, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you want to do something and you can get commissioned for it if you argue to the grand tour, uh, uh, you know, convincingly. Uh, um, it's, you know, I love, I love to compose music that has a social political edge to it. So I try to convince people to, to help me do that sometimes. But every now and then somebody really asks me to do something that is really, really cool. For instance, this year I was commissioned by the, uh, Columbia theater, uh, Miller theater, the Columbia school of the arts. Mm-hmm to compose something to celebrate the year of water. The year of water. Yeah. And, and, and it was, I just, it got me really thinking about water, its properties, how it's a political commodity, how places like Flint, Michigan, drinking water, drought, uh, flood, uh, the indifference of humanity to environmental and ecological terrorism, and how all of it affects water. It, all of it affects water. The flooding of New York during uh, the past few hurricanes, we never used to see that. Mm. Growing up in New York, we never saw, in my entire existence, we never saw the, 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 the uh, Holland Tunnel or the Lincoln Tunnel filled with water. Mm. We didn't see that. This is new. This terrifying hurricane we have and the incredible droughts, Oh, new. I'm sorry. And it's just, to me, it's so politicized. It's so about pollution. It's so about profit before humanity and all that stuff. So, you know, I thought that was out of the blue, a commission that really allowed me to do a lot of thinking. And, and I still, you know, it's an amazing gift to be able to ask me write, writing something for something you believe in. That is some food for thought. And you had also... Uh collaborated with a number of uh, dance companies like uh, uh, Alvin Ailey, Ballet Hispanico, Malpaso Dance Company, Evidence Dance Company when you worked with uh, Ron Brown, um, yeah. New York State Council on the Arts. Uh, it's, uh, how, how do you approach wedding? I guess that's a good word for it. Wedding, your approach to music your musical concept with an artistic concept from another discipline like uh like dance well you know strangely enough the first few collaborations i did with dance companies were set uh to very specific models of of existing music that i've either written or participated in and so there wasn't a collaborative artistic process for the last few that i've done I've really tried to steer things in the direction of co-creation mm-hmm. so that the choreographer 
is making up the dance. It's, I'm making up the music. And that's a real, to me, first of all, the first time I saw human beings dance to my music in a choreographed manner, mm -hmm. like, it was so powerful to see. I, felt, I literally felt like the little markings that you make on a page when you compose, I literally felt like they came to life. Mm. And it was emotionally overwhelming. I remember bawling like a child when I first saw people dance to the music that I'd composed. And then it, it, the more work I did with more collaborators, I realized that what I really want to do and have been able to now do a, a couple of times for the first time is create at the same time to create a work of art that is uh, symbiotic. The dance is literally married to the music and the music is literally married to the dance. And one doesn't come before the other or or on top of of, of the game. And, 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 and I did a piece with Ron Brown recently. Mm -hmm. It was a commission for Jacob Pillow. And it was based on a... Uh, uh, something about the Orishas and Iron Meets Fire, and it's called uh, New Conversations, and it's literally about the wedding, if you will, of ancestor, lore, African Orisha, the Aruban religion with the life, day-to-day -day, day life of, of, our, of our reality. Mm -hmm. And so... It was very real to me. It was a very real process. I went up to Jacob Pillow. I sat with Ron Brown and his dancers, and I played music I wrote, and then I improvised music and literally sat at a computer with a bunch of dancers and Ron and his company and, and kind of just this beautiful thing came about in a very organic way that I'd never, never experienced before. You know, and I, I really found that extraordinary the, to, to be able to watch something you're playing in real time inspire somebody's movement mm. you know in a way that becomes codified so that you know so that you play this music you understand it you write it and it inspires movement and you know it got to the point where some of I mean I really I've I've I think it's really changed my approach to music, and I I, I can't divorce the notes from movement. When I now, when I compose, I, I see things very architecturally. I see things in terms of movement. I I see every note and phrase that I write in a very visual way, and that was really something that happened because of working with choreographers. It it freed me a lot. It freed me. To, it's changed my, my composing a lot. I think it's given it a lot of vitality in life, which I appreciate. Since, you know, since it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really wild. Uh, mm. Somebody once taught me that you should try to, the person you should most try to amaze and delight is yourself as mm. a performer and as a composer. But I discovered this whole uh you know, side of myself that I didn't even know existed. Hmm. I had no relationship with dance. That's that's something about uh, these kind of collaborations that uh, 
the, the you you use the word symbiosis, which is very apt for to describe this because musicians are are a community. Musicians are a tribe, uh, 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 their own culture, and dancers are are a tribe. You know, everybody everybody's got their own tribe. Scientists have their tribes. Auto mechanics have their tribes, and. In situations like that, where we find that symbiosis, it gives us a new perspective on ourselves. I mean, this is this, this is what you've been, uh, what you're saying. You know, it brought something out in everybody that uh, we didn't know that we had, and um, creates something greater than the sum of its parts. I think I don't know if I'm mistaken in saying this, but dancers, I'm sure there are a lot of people who probably experience this differently, but dancers have a much more, have a much deeper connection, I think, to each other than a lot of tribes. Mm. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's because of the physical nature of catching somebody in midair, or, I, you know, I don't know, there's a lot, obviously a lot more trust. If, if you misread something in your saxophone section, no one's going to die. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But if you spin somebody up in the air and you don't catch them the right way, you could destroy their career. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like there's, a, there's some kind of an intimacy and trust in dancing communities that I've never, never seen in any other community. And I remember once we were performing in Toronto with, uh, with Malpaso. And one of the most amazing dancers I've ever known in my life is this woman named Dunya. I don't know what happened. Either she had a detached retina or something happened just before we went on stage. And she all of a sudden couldn't see. Wow. And her company, these dancers surrounded her and they were weeping with her and praying and, and, and comforting her. And there was just such profound sharing of that experience in that company, I just, it was right. I, I don't know. It was the only thing I can think of is almost religious, man. Mm. These people were, were so connected to the suffering of their colleague. Uh, it, it floored me. And then, I, then I saw one of the truly great miracles I've ever seen. Mm. This woman got out on the dance floor and danced. And it, it, it's, I'm, you know, I'm experiencing chills just remembering that minutes before she got out on stage, she could barely see, mm. but that somehow in the transmission of love and concern that her uh, family had for her, she went out and did one of the most unbelievable, and it was a soliloquy. Wow. It was a soliloquy. It was a solo dance that oh, she did. Man. And she, she just went out and, and, and she, you know, one of the most beautiful uh, dance performances I've ever seen in my life, and and I and I'm and I'm convinced that it had to do with this outpouring of community and love that she experienced from her uh, her her colleague minutes before. Your music tends to uh, be categorized as uh, Latin jazz, and uh, it's uh, it's amazing that it. Uh, eventually got its own uh, categories with the Grammy and uh, that it's become so important in American music. But uh, your music is, uh, 
seems to try to extend the boundaries or expand the boundaries of what what is uh, uh, accepted as Latin jazz or Afro-Cuban jazz. Yeah, well, it's funny. I I don't really I don't like the sandbox that I got stuck in. Mm. So I don't really like the sandbox people stick anybody in. So mm-hmm. I don't, you know, to me, roots of that, and that that's an ancient uh, kind of sandbox. The roots of jazz and Latin are so interwoven that they're kind of inextricable. Mm-hmm. And to me, people who think there's a difference between Latin and jazz, there is a, an aesthetic different approach. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the kernel... The uh, the swing kernel is the same rhythmic code as the tumbao kernel. Mm-hmm. It's the same art. It's the African DNA that is permeated throughout all this music. It's salsa and Latin and hip hop and jazz. I mean, all it's it's. I mean, the, the, to me, I don't see. I don't see that they're separate muses. And so one of the one of the first one of the earliest things I did in my career is realize that I was not really a jazz musician and not really Latin musician. That I was just kind of I think like my father, was mm-hmm. just kind of a person who loved both languages and didn't choose one or the other, but kind of speak kind of a musical Spanglish mm. <laughs> if you will. There you go, man. I'm not an expert in either of them. I'm a lost child, infinitely amazed by both. Mm. So I won't, I won't, I will never encamp myself in either world. And in fact, you know, I've, I've begun to see just so many other worlds that are just, you know, it's all, to me, it's, and, it, and it's not like saying everything is just one continuous uh, same mm-hmm. by kind of seeing the roots and the directions that both these music takes. I'm actually very aware of their different aesthetics. And um, when you're aware of the different aesthetics between jazz and Latin, you're able to kind of traverse both worlds mm-hmm. uh, in a in a much more cognitive manner you know there's a declamatory style in latin improvisation there's more of a beboppy uh, style of improvisation in jazz and, you know the best example i can think of is, is is i think jerry gonzalez kind of shows this if you listen to monk if you mm-hmm. listen to Polonius monk you kind of hear the the essence of afro latinness because it's it's Bebop, but it's not. It's African, but it's not. It's Latin, but it's not. It's, it's all those things and a great big awareness of how they interweave. Um, I don't know how to explain it. It's, 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 you know, I, I can't, I can't limit the world of jazz and I can't limit the world of Latin. So, and people, yes, people do stick me in the category of Latin jazz and Afro Cuban jazz and Afro Latin jazz, but that's okay. It's, you know, we need human beings have a need to categorize. Personally, I tend not to even think in terms of uh, 
genres or even styles. I, uh, and when I speak about these things, I'm actually translating my ideas to, to, to uh, a concept, conceptual framework that other people can understand. I think it's a matter of music constantly evolving to try to express every latent possibility that's within the music. That's brilliant. I, it, 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 you know, what? It, it, when I was in college and I took a, an art survey course, mm-hmm. I remember the, the, the professor talking about an entry point and how the master's especially when the early, early history of the Renaissance and, uh, and the, the masters of art, the master painters, the, the people who really kind of, they had an entry point into the work of art, mm-hmm. whether it was a specific thing that fits a point in a person's, in a portrait, for instance, in a glint in the eye, or mm-hmm. uh, particularly... Uh, uh, but every painter, every great artist has an entry point into their work. Hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's, that's what we should aim for, not the genre, not the, the genus, not the, 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 the full. We should aim for coaxing people into our vision for how something should be. And I think what you're talking about is, is, is exactly that. It's entering into a work of art or a piece of music through something familiar, but then you get lost in it and realize it's much bigger. Mm. You're, you're drawn into this, into this uh, I guess, like what uh, Joseph Campbell called the, the hero's journey as part right. of the listening process. So, and it's also that's also why I think it's so important not to be so genre dismissing either. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's also important to use. Carla Blade does this a lot. Mm-hmm. She uses genres like you and I would use, uh, you know, textures and notes. Hmm. She she's you know she uses uh, so many different things. But it's what? How do you coax people on a journey? You know, you might want to turn them on to uh, some rare, uh, incredible sushi, <laughs> but they're kids, right? Or children, and you so you give them a little peanut butter and jelly, and you just walk them along the path. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, whatever it is, whatever entry point you mm-hmm. can use to gain people to go on a journey, I think is really important. I don't throw away the language of mambos. I don't throw away the language of free jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, I will I will employ both in one piece because that that you know you want to bring people on a journey. That's the only way we expand as human beings. Let's take a break and listen to a little more of Arturo's music. This is a piece called Baby Jack. Baby 
talk about your uh your recent release four questions four questions was first posed in uh, 1903 by uh, w.e.b du bois uh the civil rights activist in his uh, book the souls of black folk how how did that start how, how did you how did you begin that project what was the inspiration for it that book speaks to very specific conditions uh for African-Americans in the particular period that are almost credentialized or ratifiers for expansive thought and growth. And somehow, here we are, you know, X amount of years later, and we're still fighting those same problems. Incredible, the same problems. So now we have a, you know, very accomplished uh, black men and women who are still being stopped by cops and brutally killed. Mm-hmm. It, you know, this is this is kind of something that 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 affected me deeply, and 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 so I watched Cornell West effortlessly deal 
with this incongruity mm. that the return, the, 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 the idea of returning love for hatred and oppression is what is really at the root of what W.E.B. Du Bois is speaking to. And in particular, he talks about music. Mm. And so I, I watched him. I mean, I kind of followed Cornell and saw him many times on YouTube and on TV. And I just always was kind of floored by his profound love, nature, civil rights hero person. But I, 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 I particularly was moved by a speech he gave in Seattle, at Seattle Town Hall, in, uh, when he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, speaking in, uh, in support of a book he wrote called Black Prophetic Fire. Mm-hmm. But he specifically deals with these four questions that W.E.B. Du Bois poses. And so I, I fell in love with that speech. Mm-hmm. You know, I fell in love with that particular speech and, and just loved Cornell and, and started to begin to, I was moved deeply by that speech. And so I started to begin to kind of wonder how, you know, how somebody does that, how they speak so beautifully and so musically and so clearly to issues of such profound, and such, it's, it's such profound devastation hmm. is being you know anyway so I began to be fascinated with Cornell and um, and I'm kind of got very socially active and political and I started doing a lot of work with uh, Russell Schultz and all kinds of uh, uh, quasi you know Revs.com and the Revolutionary Party and mm-hmm. all kinds of people that I, I, I had, and, and, and so somehow I got involved in being on the host committee of a dialogue between Cornell West and Bob Avakian, the president of the uh, Communist Party USA. Mm-hmm. And the topic was revolution and faith, which is really personal to me because I'm a person of faith. I'm not a denominationalist. I don't really, I didn't talk about who I am, but I have faith, and I have a faith that I, I practice and love, and, and it's not this or that or the other. It's my, you know, whatever it is, I, I believe in God. Mm-hmm. And so I am also a revolutionary. I believe in complete and absolute dismantling of this system. Absolutely. Completely. And so I was really you know, interested in this dialogue because, of course, communism, communism essentially says you can't be a person of faith. It's basically dogma created by capitalist society to enslave people. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there. You dig? Yeah. <laughs> so I was really fascinated by how Cornell was going to deal with this. And uh, I got to, it was held in Riverside Church. And... Uh, and I watched him, and I watched the, uh, Bob Avakian speak, and he was very eloquent, very uh, inspirational leader and speaker, and he was fascinating. And 
But then I watched Cornell, and Cornell struck me as something altogether different. Cornell struck me as inspired in a way that I had never seen before. That was mm. the first time I saw him uh, live. And as he was speaking, I, I, he just reminded me of John Coltrane and Dexter mm. Gordon. He reminded me of uh, Dizzy Gillespie, and he reminded me of all the great musical heroes that have changed my life. And so I kind of started hearing him in his oratory, oratory as, a, as an instrumental soloist. Hmm. And, so I, I, and, and so marrying that to my convictions was, it was like an epiphany. And I said, I have to write a concerto for this man. And um, so I started, you know, trying to convey that to him. I knew that he'd been to see us play several times, and I tried to get a hold of him through his institution, through his assistant, and somehow it never worked out. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I was asked to speak at a rally against police brutality. And so I was able to sit with Cornell and march with him. And, uh, and eventually, uh, the evening ended at some church and he spoke again and gave one of the most unbelievable speeches I ever heard. In fact, I remember he was, he had a flu, but somehow he dragged himself up onto the podium and he was so weakened by it the brutality of this police stuff and by his physical condition, I thought he was going to pass out. Mm. And it was just the most moving speech I'd, I'd ever heard. And, 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 and as soon as it was over, um, I heard the MC say, and now we'll have a word from Arturo O'Farrell. <laughs> and so I got up and followed Cornell and spoke from my heart and my convictions and, I spoke about uh, the things that matter to me, and, and, and uh, you know, Cornell was very gracious, came up to me and, and invited me to sit next to him. Hmm. And so I was able to uh, tell him that I wanted to write this work of art, work of, and I'm telling you, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not trying to be disingenuous, but, you know, when Cornell speaks, it's, it's it's, it's synesthesia. It's music and light and colors and swirling things. And, and, and I just was trying really, really hard to capture some of that unbelievable improvisatory elegance and, and genius that he, he spouts. And so I finally was able to track him down. And I was, uh, it's one of those situations where I was able to convince the Apollo Theater to commission the work so I could seclude myself uh, and really pour my life and soul into it. And I was always also lucky enough to have a residency at the McDowell Colony in uh, New Hampshire, and I was able to research, uh, listen to a lot of Cornell speeches and, and sketch out uh, this, and my ideas and bring them to some sort of formal stage of realization and um i think you captured it nicely in your music well yeah i mean i i I know i i tried to capture his exact pitch and cadence and his speaking uh but he changes it every time he gives a speech so what ended up happening was even better he 
when he recorded it with us, he did not do the same thing. He did something even more genius. And so, <laughs> but somehow I got that energy and I got the the pacing and pitch and and, and rhythm of his speaking. So the two fit. Um, and the fact, I mean, it's interesting to me. Again, we were talking about commissions and year of water and politics of contamination and what's going on with the planet today what's going on with uh, this pandemic and this horrifying mm-hmm. shrill lack of moral compass that guides our nation and it's amazing to me when you can marry your convictions with your art and in particular with uh, with Cornell I, there was so much of me in 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 that work that Cornell, uh, uh, that I was able to capture. So I felt like I really married uh, my soul in in music uh, to something I believed in, which I could never have done because I'm not as eloquent as Cornell. Mm. And, um, but it was, it was tremendously uh, emotional to me to hear that work performed with Cornell, to record it and to have it live. Both you and uh, Dr. West are uh, members of uh, MFM, Musicians for Musicians. How, how did you get involved with MFM? How did that begin? Well, so, Rob, um, was another person who noticed my political statements and my... Uh, uh, the things that I, I tend to say in public and the things that I tend to write about and post and compose about are, are very much in keeping with what MFM stands for. And MFM stands for musicians being treated uh, with, with great love and respect. And, and so Sorab reached out to me and invited me to, to be on one of the very first really organized boards of, mm-hmm. of MFM, but it was easy enough for me to sign on to MFM and be a part of the value system. It just, so rather, it really understands something that most people don't, which is that musicians deserve to be treated and paid and, uh, and valued for the work that they bring uh, to the world. Mm-hmm. It's it is not a, it is it is not you know musicians work the equivalent of a doctorate just in training to be able to play competently and you know it's years and years and years of dues paying and years and years and years of practicing and we should not be treated like an afterthought we should we should be treated like artists and skilled people and people whose services make uh, uh, the world an easier place to live in. And, um, and so I was, you know, so was speaking my language and I, I belong to other service organizations, but none are quite like MFM. MFM is, is really a timely and important organization for people who believe in fairness and equality and people who believe that, uh, that people should not take advantage of one another. And it's an, in a way, it extends past musicians. It's very much, you know, 
in keeping with uh, Dr. West's philosophies and all people of good uh, conviction and character, understand that if you suffer, I suffer. Mm-hmm. If I suffer, you suffer. And, and, and in some ways, we sometimes overlook that in the lives of, of, of musicians and dancers and artists. We don't realize that they don't have paychecks. We don't realize that they don't have uh, uh, more often than not any guarantee of any kind of economic sustainability. We don't understand that they don't, the job of being a musician doesn't even come with medical insurance, doesn't mm-hmm. come with dental insurance, doesn't come with any kind of RA, doesn't come with a 401. Musicians devote their lives, their lives, their, their safety, their security, the safety and security of their family to do what they do. And I mean, I knew this because I grew up with Chico O'Farrell. Mm-hmm. And Chico Farrell was a freelance musician, and he was a freelance composer. He devoted his life to making music and, and putting food on the plates of other of, of his fellow musicians. And I and I'm sorry, you know, maybe it's more tribalism, but I can't I can't think of anything more noble than putting your life uh, in the service of others. And musicians do this on a regular basis. I uh, personally have a tendency of uh, seeing my my own musical performances as a as a service that I'm doing to hum- for humanity. In fact, um, there's a quote from Ludwig van Beethoven I've always found inspirational, where he said, um, uh, and I and I'm paraphrasing, he said that uh, there are vibrations in the air, and these vibrations are God speaking to His human creation. And when musicians play. We give birth to the children of God, and if we are not that, we are nothing. See, that's astonishingly funky. <laughs> that's like that's James Brown. That is funkified truth, love, mm-hmm. max to the core. That's the you know, and in fact, it makes sense because physicists have discovered that there is a vibration to every element, and that the atoms mm-hmm. and the very elements of existence have the vibration. Everything that exists has. works exactly like music does. Yeah, and so, it's, and so what Beethoven was saying is exactly, exactly correct. Mm-hmm. The universe and its music is, is, is what gives our lives purpose and shape, and I know that. I know that inherently, because I hear, uh, I hear everything in patterns and pictures and cycles and shapes and, mm. and, and so for me yeah, the universe is constantly singing to us mm. Beethoven was right on the money right on the money who are we to argue with Ludwig von Beethoven <laughs> uh, not I not, boy, I'll tell you <laughs> me funny, neither as a, pra- as a pragmatic practitioner of the piano mm. I'll tell you I'm not arguing with, with that that man could write for the piano oh my god yeah he could write for his orchestral works, the symphonies. Wow. Yeah. There is a reason Beethoven. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And it, you know what I told my son? My son's a trumpet player. He's a, a wonderful musician. I told him, if you want to learn how to improvise, listen to Nusfat Fateh Ali Khan. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, whoa. You, you just opened up a real thing there, man. Whatever you are, if you don't hear the universe and God, Allah, speaking to us through mm-hmm. Beethoven and Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and John Coltrane, just 
you know, just pack it up and, you know, just don't, you know, just let's don't, if you don't want to be open to it, don't be open to it. But mm-hmm. it, it is, it is, I mean, I, I, I've correctly, correctly channeled uh, music is to me the direct voice of God. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just gracious, uh, just grateful to be alive, to be a musician. Yeah. One last question. It seems that, you know, you know, throughout your career, you've been always uh, doing all of these different things, and you're always striving to move on to bigger and better things. What's next? This is a very good question. <laughs> I am working on. No, it is. It's a very good question. I'm. I'm I, I know it sounds like the fad of the year, <laughs> but I'm working on an opera. Not because really? I'm an elitist. Not because I am a fan of uh, big, huge structures. Because there is a, 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 a matter that spoke to me in larger-than-life terms. It has to do with the murder of an Ecuadorian immigrant in 2008. Oh. Who's, uh, his name was Marcelo Lucero. Mm-hmm. And he um, was coming home from work one day when uh, he encountered a group of teenagers, teenagers who mm-hmm. were intent on going Mexican hunting. Beaner hopping, they called it. And they were used to shaking down uh, immigrants and the police looking the other way. And, of course, the atmosphere of bank failure and uh, blaming the immigrants was powerful in 2008 in Long Island and Patchogue. Mm-hmm. And so when Marcelo resisted, uh, the, one of the young men plunged a knife into his heart. And he died. And um, it was, at first, just... You know, it was a hate crime, and everybody was uh, it made the news, and then um, you know it was quickly forgotten about. And then there was a series of articles exploring how some of these young men that killed him were uh, tangentially involved in the Latino community, and in fact, one of them, one of the young men who killed him, was a black Puerto Rican, a young black Puerto Rican kid, and so and something in me just started kind of dealing with the idea that there was a person who plunged a knife into another person, yes. But so many ingredients went into that moment, and without denying uh, the crime, I also want to ascribe it to hatred on a societal level and socioeconomic terrorism. And so I want to, you know, uh, that there's nothing to me that's clearer than that this young man who killed this other young man are kind of, they're almost like big players in a much bigger, much larger scenario that has to do with the financial crisis of the banking mortgage scandal, the uh, rise of anti-immigrant rhetoric on the parts of the uh, officials. So many things went into that moment, and of course, the, the basis of, of it was racism and hatred. But I started really thinking about families in Patchogue, white families, Ecuadorian families. I started realizing it's a huge story to tell here, and so I started writing. I started writing an opera called uh, Lucero, and mm-hmm. it deals with uh, the setting, the people, the town, the individuals, and the larger societal framework in which this uh, senseless, brutal crime 
came to be and others others like it. Um, and in a way, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story because long before uh, the thing that calls itself president became a politician, <laughs> there was a politician in Long Island blaming everything on Mexicans, blaming everything on immigrants and Latinos. So it just—it just we missed we missed that warning, that foreboding, and and for some reason it just it it it's been placed on my heart to put that warning up again, mm. you know, on a big big scale with lots of of, of dramatization, and beautiful, amazing, mysterious uh, performance, and uh, see if maybe we'll. You know, I don't know. It's just I think it's an incredibly important story to tell. One that we haven't learned anything from, but maybe this will help. I don't know. So um, that's that's what's next. That's my next big one. Mm. I can't wait to hear it. Anyway, thank you for this. Is a, been a really thank you. great interview. It's fascinating really conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed. Thank you for tuning into MFM Speaks Out, the official podcast for musicians for musicians. This episode featured Arturo O'Farrell. The topics we covered included his Grammy nominations, his work with Chico O'Farrell, Harry Belafonte, and Dizzy Gillespie, the evolution of Latin jazz, O'Farrell's work as a composer, his collaborations with other artists and dance companies, his recent CD release in collaboration with Dr. Cornell West, his involvement with Musicians for Musicians, his future plans, and his spiritual philosophies on music. We're going to leave you with one more piece of music. This is a piece from Four Questions featuring the choral arrangements of Jana Ballard called Amidst the Fire and the Whirlwind. Oh.